We're going to stay primarily in 1 Kings 19 this morning. And so uh, you can, you can uh, pretty much stay there with me. We're going to really be, be staying in this story uh, when we get into it here in a moment. Amen. Pastor Drew, you've got your hands full today, buddy. <laughs> I, want to, I want to actually teach you about a certain subject today that has actually been an epidemic and plagued um, not just our nation, but you're going to find prevalent around the world. And, and so I want, to, I want to read you some statistics before I tell you what it is, and then I'm going to read them again when you know what it is. 80% of people that deal with this issue in their life never seek help. It's most prevalent in the ages between 45 and 64. How many of you are, now I'm giving you a 20-year range, so you're not dating yourself, okay? How many of you are between the age of 45 and 64 and willing to admit it publicly? All right. So this is most prevalent in your age group. You're the most likely to deal with it. Women actually have a higher rate of this than men. At any given moment in slice in time, there's 121 million people around the world that deal with this. 121 million people. That's not over the course of a year. That's in any given moment. 16 million people in the United States alone every year report dealing with this. And that does not include those that are unreported. It costs $80 billion a year in the United States to deal with this one issue I'm going to talk about this morning. $80 billion. And 11%, that's over 1 in 10 adolescents under the age of 18 report having dealt with this before they were 18 years old. I'm talking today about none other than depression. Let me read those statistics to you again. 80% of depressed Americans never seek help. You're more prevalent or more likely to be depressed if you're between the ages of 45 and 64. Women are more likely to be depressed. Now, in the first service, I said that's because they have to deal with us men. And then I had about 14 women simultaneously say, yep. So I decided not to do it the same way in this service. At any given moment in time, 121 million people around the world are depressed in this moment right now, have, have clinical depression. I'm not just talking about having a bad day. 16 million in the United States every year seek help for this. So if 80% don't, that gives you the number of how many are actually dealing with it. $80 billion is what it costs in the United States alone between the loss of productivity and healthcare costs, $80 billion. And 11%, that means one in 10 of our children walking around middle schools and high schools will deal with clinical depression before they're 18 years old. Now, I look at these statistics and, I, and oftentimes we open our doors, of course, to talk to anyone here, members of our church that are going through something. And we oftentimes have conversations with people that are dealing with depression. And there's some standard answers that you give. You know, God's not given you a spirit of fear, but he's given you a sound mind and all of these things. And 
this is an opportunity for you to do this and this. And there's some standard answers. But I, I you know, and, and they, of course, they, they work and they, they, people take them and run with them. But I was looking in the Word of God for a specific example and prescription, if you will, for how to deal with depression. And I found one, because otherwise this would be a much shorter service. Some of you will get that later, or just maybe it wasn't funny. Or maybe you're depressed. <laughs> Either way, I'm, I'm going through with this, okay? <laughs> it's too late now. So there's a prescription that we find in the story of one of the great generals in the Word of God. And that is with the story of Elijah. Many, many people don't realize it, but Elijah went through a two or three month period in his life where by today's standards, he would be massively clinically depressed. Now, before I read that to you, which is right here in 1 Kings 19, just prior to him entering into this valley in his life of depression, just prior to this, we find that Elijah has one of the greatest kind of ministry moments of his life on Mount Carmel with the 400 prophets of Baal, where the Spirit of God moves through him and manifests in, the, in a practical and a measurable way. The Spirit of God manifests in such a way that it's recorded as one of the greatest demonstrations of the power of God flowing through a man or a woman's you know, gift or ministry in the entire Word of God. We look at this as what happened on that mountain, Mount Carmel, with those 400 prophets of Baal. We look at this as an example of the power of God moving through a man. Right prior to Elijah moving into this valley of depression that I'm going to read to you about, he has one of the greatest, highest moments of his life. He's God's man of faith and power for the hour. That's what they used to say years ago. He is, he is who God is moving through in that moment. He is the Reinhardt Bonnke of the day. He is whoever you would put up at the top of that list, the Louis Giglio, whoever it is, the T.D. Jakes. He is anointed. He is gifted. God flows through him. He's demonstrating the power of God. He's taking a false God and bringing it to its knees with the power of God that's flowing through him. And just a short period after one of the greatest moments in his ministry, we find Elijah in a valley of depression. And we start to read that in 1 Kings 19. If you look at verse 3, it says that Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. So we start off with fear. He's fearful. Let's add these up together. Because just because you're fearful of something doesn't mean you're depressed. But let's add up the combination of these things. In the next verse, it says, Elijah prayed that he might die. He said, for I have had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. So he's fearful and he's suicidal. He wants to die. Then we find in the next verse that he says, then he lays down under the tree and he falls asleep. Now, if you continue to read this, you're going to realize that it was for several days that he slept as the angel of the Lord would come, wake him up and feed him and he'd go back to sleep. So he's excessively tired. He's fearful, he's sleeping all the time, and he's suicidal. He wants to die. 
Then we find, if we go on to verse 10, it says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They have broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. So he's fearful. He's suicidal. He's sleeping all the time, and he's alone and feels like nobody, nobody's with him anymore. And he's feeling rejected. He's dealing with feelings of rejection. He's alone. He's suicidal. He's fearful. And he's sleeping all the time. Folks, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but I think if you had a clinical definition for depression, Dr. Julie, you can help me. This is it, right? See, that DR in front of her name is actually means doctor, okay? And this is what she does. Is this depression? Tired, fearful, suicidal, feelings of rejection, isolated, alone. This, guys, you have to understand, this is the man of the hour. This is the guy who God is raining down fire through him. I mean, you want to talk about, about being connected to the Lord? Because, you know, I'm like, well, if somebody's depressed, they're not connected to God, so they need to reconnect. Well, that's not his case. He's talking to the Lord all the time. They must be doing something wrong in their faith, clearly. And I love it because I'm going to give you God's prescription for Elijah in a moment. But I love the fact that before we see the good part, I want to highlight something. God does not condemn Elijah. He doesn't say to Elijah, listen, buddy, how could you be depressed? You're the one I'm doing everything through. You're the one that's got, you know, I'm flowing my spirit through and the power of God's manifesting. Like, come on, suck it up. What do you mean you're alone? Come on. What's wrong with you? Oh, you're feeling tired and alone. Oh, you want to kill yourself? It's terrible. Come on, suck it up, buddy. We got work to do. That's just terrible. Wow. Because two months ago, you're like, woo, I'm the fire guy, and now you're all depressed and upset. Get over it. He doesn't say that to him. Actually, God doesn't even address the fact that he's where he's at until later in this chapter. He doesn't, he doesn't do any of the things that you think we should do. He doesn't come to him and say, hey, I'm sorry, sounds terrible, but you'll make it through. Anybody ever say that to you? You're going to make it through. You're going to make it. You're going to make it. You're like, you're trying to get the last breath of water as your face sinks below the water. Like, you're going to make it. And they're all up here on the boat, you know, and they might have a life jacket in their hands. It's like, you're going to make it. They're like, well, I don't feel like I'm going to make it right now. I'm not feeling like I'm going to make it. Thank you for that, though. He doesn't even say that to him. This is what we find that God does. The first thing is that we read, if you read the story, and I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but the first thing we find out is that God sends him to a mountain. And this mountain, Mount Horeb, is actually where the law was given to Moses. It is significant, not just because the law was given to Moses there, it's significant because it's where God met Moses. So it is a, is a designating meeting place to be in the presence of God and for God to speak to you. And so what he's actually saying is the Lord 
The Lord, the Lord sends or gives him a direction and says, I want to go to a place where I can meet you and speak to you. What's also important about this is Moses got away from all the craziness and he dedicated that time to connecting or hearing God's voice. And so he's saying to me, he says, I want you to take time out, out of your week, out of your life, whatever it may be, just simply to connect with me in a place where my presence is. Now, there's a lot of ways you can do this. But folks, I'm going to tell you this, and I know that you don't hear a lot of messages where people are encouraging you to go to church, because that's not cool anymore. But one of the ways that you can do this is by coming to church. Okay, in Galatians 6.2, it says that we bear one another's burdens, which means that as a community of believers, there's nothing magical about the four walls here. There's nothing magical or spiritual about these. What's beautiful and what's amazing and what God has poured out and what, what's healing about this place is who's in it. Because I've been in here a lot when it's empty and there's nothing special about it. There's nothing special about this place. What's special is the people that are in it. Because God inhabits what? The praises of his people. Which means that he's here when you're here. How about that? He's here when you're here. And so when you're here, God's here. And when God's here, this is a meeting place and a place where you can encounter him. Do you know how I know that the presence of God's going to be here every week? Not because we sing the right song. We could sing Mary Had a Little Lamb and God's presence would come. Why? Because you all come hungry expecting to commune with God. And because of that, he comes. So God's presence is here because you're here. And so the people around you are part of the, the piece of the puzzle of how God wants to begin to heal where you're at in your life, if you're in that valley of depression. Because when you come here, because people are here, God is here, and when God is here, he has a place where he can meet you, and you can feel his presence, and he can become real to you. So what he's essentially saying is he's saying, I want you to go, and I want you to meet with me in a place separated from everything else. Take time out and go meet with me. That's part of what we use church for. We use church to dedicate a time in our week so that we can touch and commune and feel God and that we can hear his voice and that we can speak to him. It's a time in our week that we push across aside everything else. We don't worry about anything else. And we just come here and we say, God, I'm here for you. And this is what he's telling Elijah. And then something else happens. So the first thing is he says, I want, I want to meet with you. And the second thing that happens is he, is he does this. God says to Elijah, he says, I want you to tell me what the problem is. And this is how he does it. Go, go, go to verse, I think it's uh, 10 or 11, or 13, verse 13. It says, when Elijah heard that he wrapped his face in his mantle, he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now Jesus, or I'm sorry, now God already knows what Elijah's doing because he just has been having a conversation with him. So why is God asking Elijah why you're here? Think about that. Why is God asking Elijah an answer he already knows? If he already knows the answer, why is he asking it? Because he wants to hear Elijah say what's going on in his life. He wants Elijah to ask him for help. He wants Elijah to voice what's happening in his life so that he can trust God and ask God for help in that moment. How many times do you and I have something going on in our life where we want God to help us and we never actually say it? 
People come sometimes and they have conversations. They say, I've got this going on, I've got this going on. I really need this to happen. I really need this to happen. And the first thing out of my mouth a lot of times is, have you, this sounds crazy, have you asked God to help you with this? And you'd be shocked how many people have not taken the time out to actually talk to the Lord and say, Lord, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm encountering. I feel suicidal. I feel I'm in fear. I feel rejected. I feel alone. This is what I'm doing here. This is where I'm at. Because oftentimes we only tell somebody a problem if we believe that they actually have a solution to it. And I feel like sometimes we don't talk to God because we don't believe he can actually solve our problem. And one of the ways that you show God that you have faith that he can solve your problem is by talking to him and telling him what it is. That's the first step. The first step is to say, hey, here's what's going on. The second step is, hey, can you help me? Will you help me? He, tells you, he says to Elijah, hey, what's going on? Elijah says this. Go to the next verse. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord. You've, we've already seen this. This is why this is so important that God asks him this. Because we've already seen this in verse 10. He already says this. God's already heard him t- literally say these exact words. But he asks him for a reason. He asks him because he wants Elijah to speak it out. Now, I want to say this. I said this in the first service. I, I am so grateful for what the Word of Faith movement has taught us. But I, I, I also believe that some folks have taken some of the Word of Faith tenets that are true and yes and amen and have twisted them. Because just because you speak out to the Lord that this is where I'm at doesn't mean you're speaking it into existence. You hear me? So I, people say, don't speak that out. Don't, don't speak that out. I, I had somebody, I, I broke my toes, which I shouldn't be wearing these shoes, just don't tell the doctor, but I'm tired of wearing goofy shoes. So I, I, I spoke, I, I, I broke my toes and a bone in my foot, and somebody said to me, hey, what's going on your foot? Because I had this um, shoe on it, this like post-op surgical shoe thing. He said, what's going on your foot? I said, well, I broke it. And they said, don't speak that out. <laughs> I'm not speaking it out. The x-ray is speaking it out. Blame the x-ray. Do you, do you see what I'm saying here? So, so, so I think sometimes we take that and we get it twisted. We don't realize that God actually wants to have an honest conversation with you. And I want to take this a step further that I didn't take it in the first service because they weren't ready for it. But you all are ready for it. I got to be honest with you. It makes us look goofy to people when we don't face the reality of what's going on and have an honest conversation with God. He can handle it. He can actually handle... Th- honestly, what's going on. It doesn't mean you go around saying, I am an addict. I am an addict. Did you know I'm an addict? Did you know I'm an addict? This doesn't mean that. But having a conversation with God where you're like, hey, God, this is where I'm at, doesn't mean you're speaking something negative into existence. Are you with me? I want you to hear my heart. I'm not making fun of that. I want you to hear my heart. We need to balance and understand that, yes, our words have power, but God actually wants us to be honest with where we're at. If you can't be honest with God with what you're going through, who can you be honest with? God's saying to Elijah, hey, why are you here? Well, Elijah's already said it, but he wants Elijah to say it to him. He wants Elijah to say, God, this is what's going on. Now, what we find in this scripture, as we continue to read, we're going to get to in a moment, is that God has already prepared way in advance a solution or, or, or the provision for Elijah. So God's asking these questions. 
He already knows the answer, and he already has the solution. How many times have you not opened your mouth when the whole time God had both, the, both, both already knew what you were going to say, already knew what the answer to his question was, and had the solution waiting for you? But we never actually face the honest truth with where we're at. And Elijah says, hey, God, this is where I'm at. Verse 10. Go back to verse 10. Oh, no, 14. Sorry. I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. He says, once again, I am alone. I, I don't have anywhere to go, God. I am, I'm by myself. I'm feeling this way. I'm depressed. I've been this way for months, and I don't know what to do. Go to verse 18 for me. God says this. He says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now what this means, I don't want you to get tripped up here. What this means is, God's saying, listen to me. Now that you've actually been honest with where you're at, I'm going to... I'm going to replace the lie that you've embraced with the truth that's found in what I've already provided for you. Now, I'm going to break this down for you. This is like Sozo 101. Have you ever, anyone ever had a Sozo here? A couple of you. The rest of you need it, okay? We made our whole staff go through it. It's not just nothing personal to you. My dad went through it. I did it. My whole family did it. Everybody got Sozoed. We just sozoed everybody. It was like a sozo machine gun, okay? Everybody got sozoed, okay? This is part of it. God actually sozos, if you will. That's our modern term for it, Elijah, because he says, now that you've been honest with the lie that you've embraced, I'm going to replace it with the truth, because the lie that you've embraced is you're alone, and you're isolated, and nobody's like you, and, and everybody else has been turned over to Baal, and nobody has your back, and there's nobody like you in this fight, and you're fighting this battle alone, and yada, yada, all on and on and on and on. Basically, exactly what somebody that is in clinical depression believes about their own life, that they're fighting it on their own. There's no one else that has their back. No one else thinks like them. They're just there. They're isolated. They're by themselves, and they, they don't believe that anybody is, cares, anybody can rescue them, that God's provided anything for them. And because he was honest with where he was at, we see in this that God, three verses later, says, by the way, there's 7,000 other people waiting in Israel that are soldiers, men that are ready to fight the battle, that haven't turned and bowed down to Baal, that haven't kissed him, that still believe what you believe. There's 7,000 people like you. While you've been isolating yourself and you've been depressed and you've been believing that you're the only one, there's 7,000 people that are waiting to fight the battle with you. Think about that. Some of us, when we're in that place of depression, if we had one person that had our back, we would be happy. We would, we would have hope. But there's 7,000 here that God had already prepared that had not bowed their head to Baal, that still believe in the same God that Elijah believes in, that are waiting to join arm in arm with him. Do you see this process? It's so, it's so 
crazy how God paints this picture and then piece by piece by piece shows us intricately how he begins to deal with Elijah. And this is the crazy thing. This is a chronological thing. This is something that has to happen back to back. If you don't start by coming to a place where you can hear God's voice and meet with him, then you'll never get to the place where you can actually say, Lord, this is where I'm at. Do you hear me? And if you never say, God, this is where I'm at, this is what's going on. i got to be honest with you, Lord. I don't feel like going out of the house. I don't feel like seeing anybody. I want to throw the next sharp object, object that comes near me, near the next person that walks in front of me. If you never get to that place, which means if you never meet with him, and you never get to that place where you can actually be honest with where you're at, then you can never get to the place where God can take and understand the lie you're believing and replace it with the truth. There's a reason that Jesus is called the way, the truth, and the life. Because he wants to take the lies that you've embraced and replace it with truth. Now, if you find somebody depressed, clinically depressed, or on the verge of it, you will find somebody that has embraced certain lies about their life every time. One of the lies that we've believed is that a little green or red or yellow or blue pill or whatever they are, is going to fix things. Now, if you're on medication right now, I'm not here to tell you to stop taking your medication because I'm not a doctor. I would never advise that. But I do, do want to tell you this. There is no magic pill. There's no magic pill to solve your depression. It can help you cope. It can help you deal with where you're at. It can do all of that. And there's folks that have been helped by it. But there is no magic pill. The reason I know this is because every six months, they're changing you to something else. I've, I've been through this battle with people in my extended family where once, once, like, this is going to be the end-all, be-all. If we just get this person on this medication, everything's going to be fine. And for about three months, it's fine. And then all of a sudden, they're like, yeah, we're going to move them on to something else. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. There is no magic pill but there is a solution in the word of God. Are you with me? There is a solution. And the solution is that you get honest enough with the Lord and meet with him where he can begin to replace the lies that you've embraced with the truth that is found in Jesus so that you can move on with your life and stop believing the lies. The lies of I'm not good enough, I'm a failure, no one wants to be with me, no one wants to be my friend, I'll never date anybody, I'll never get married, I'm not worthy to be loved. Whatever it may be that you embrace as a lie, that is a lie, God can replace it with the truth and you can move on with your life and climb your way out of the depression. You say, Pastor Dan, is that simple? Yeah, it's that simple, but it's also really difficult because you have to do it. Are you with me? It's the easiest and the hardest thing you'll ever do. It's easy, but it's hard in practice because you actually have to believe, hey God, I really want to embrace the truth about my life. Because God not only lies to you, I'm going to use you as an example. He doesn't just whisper in your ear. I mean, the devil doesn't just, not God, that would be terrible. That reminds me of a story while I'm just sitting here. That reminds me of a story. My brother, Matt, um, we have a video. Eventually, we'll play parts of it in church, I think, just to embarrass one another. It's an old family video of ours when we were young. I think Jim was like 12, 11, 12, 13. So I was like 9, 8, something like that. My brother Matt was like two or three, and he's in the bathtub taking a bath, and he's sitting there, and he's 
And my mom comes, or no, the lady that was videoing, a friend of ours comes in to video him. He starts singing a song. What was it? Do you remember? I don't remember. Anyways, it was just a simple children's song. Well, he gets to this part where he goes spontaneous with his worship for a moment, and he starts singing, he never got up again. He never got up again. He never got up again for about 15 times. What I'm trying to say is his theology was a little off at three years old. So let me correct my theology. It wasn't the Lord that was whispering bad things in your ear. But when the enemy whispers in your ear and says, this lie and that lie about you. And you know, yeah, you're not like everybody else. You're different. Do you see the way that she looked at you? You're never going to be this and you're never going to be that. And the reason that you're where you are in your life is because you're a screw up and you're this and you're that. See, even successful people have these lies that they believe. Some of the people that are going to the psychologist the most are the ones that have the most money. It has nothing to do with that. And this, and this, and this. And then he does this to you. He does what happened to Elijah. He isolates you. Because he doesn't want anyone else to tell you anything different. And when you have friends around you that want to breathe life into you and tell you how worth it you are and how valuable you are, he keeps you away from them because they really don't like you. And when you want to go to church or you want to go to a gathering of believers where you can encounter God somewhere, he says, you just need to stay home. They don't really love you. Remember when that lady sat in your seat last week? She could care less if you were here. And you're like, she's going to stay home and eat bonbons out by the pool. Nobody cares. We laugh, but this happens all the time. And then people get isolated. And then before you know it, the lies become a reality in their life. And that reality destroys them from the inside out because they're never in a place where they can get honest with God and God can connect to them and God can replace those lies with his truth. Because when that happens, it is the beginning of you coming out of all that depression and experiencing true freedom in Jesus. And then what we, we didn't read in verses, I think, 15 through 17 is God actually sends Elijah back to where he was supposed to be in the first place. And he says, the assignment and the purpose of God has not been canceled over your life. But he says, you're still going to do what you've been called to do. He says this, 15. 15. 15. 15. Verse 15. How about them fingers, right? The Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you've arrived, you will anoint Hazel king over Aram. Verse 16. Nurse 43, get your kid. They're being bad. Okay. Verse 16. And Jehu, the son of, Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of, that's not Snapchat, by the way. Okay. We'll go with Shaphat, okay? You shall anoint as prophet in your place. Verse 17. It shall come about, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel, Jehu, shall put, shall put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. He literally says to him, I want you to go and anoint kings. I want you to go, and, and you're going to see the victorious, you're going to go forth in victory. I want you to go and do everything you've been called to do, Elijah. You have not been, your, the plan of God has not been canceled over your life. And then in verse 18 is when he reminds him, oh, by the way, I've got 7,000 waiting for you. 
to help you. You're not alone. You received that here this morning? I'm going to finish with this. Finish with this. If you are dealing with this in your life, and, or you've got somebody close to you that's dealing with it in your life, this is the way forward. You can totally be set free from the valley of depression that you're in. Not because somebody lays hands on you and you fall out and flop on the ground. That's wonderful, and God can encounter you there. But you have to get honest with God with where you're at. And you have to allow him, I don't know, that's my child, I'm pretty sure. That's not your fault, honey. She takes after me. She found something to beat on that, that fan with. Great job, honey. Way to go. You stole the show again. <laughs> Hi. Hi, Maddie. It's my little miracle. If you don't ever get to a place where you can be honest with God with where you're at, and get in a place where you feel his presence and can commune with him. Then you'll never get to a place where God can replace the lies you've believed and embraced with his truth. And if you'll do this, if you'll, if you'll get in a place where you can connect with him, be honest with where you're at, and allow him to replace those lies with his truth. In this case, it was you're not alone, and I've actually got help waiting for you. And I knew the answer and had the solution before you ever told me the problem. If you allow him to do that in your life, then not only does he want you to climb out of that, that hole of depression, but he wants, to he wants to put you right back into the calling of God in your life, the assignment of God in your life. Sometimes we think that being set free or delivered means that we have some sort of like you know, experience in church where something crazy happens and lightning falls from heaven. And that happens sometimes, sure. But most of the time, people get set free because they make a decision that I'm going to allow the lies that I've embraced to be replaced with the truth of God in my life. And then I'm going to live my life according to those truths and not the lies that I've embraced. And if you'll do that, once and for all, you can beat this thing in your life. So let's just do this. Let's stand to our feet. This is a very sensitive subject. Normally on a service like this, I would do an altar call for people that are struggling. I'm not going to do that today. What I'm going to do is I'm going to have us join hands because probably half of us should respond to this altar call. So instead, I'm going to have you join hands with the person next to you. If you don't know them, it's fine. It's cool. You can wash your hands later, all right? If you're a germaphobe, we're going to replace those lies with the truth, which means those germs are not going to kill you. All right. And this is what we're going to do. We're going to bow our heads, and we're going to pray this together. So, Father, we thank you right now for every person in this building. God, we pray over their lives, those that have struggled with this, those that have family members that have struggled with this. 
And God, we believe that once and for all, that Lord, we're going to get honest. We're going to get, we're going to get in a place. We're going to come into the house of the Lord. We're going to get in a place where we can connect with you. God, we're going to be honest with where we're at. We're going to allow you to take the lies that we've embraced and replace them with your truth so that we can once and for all get back to work in the kingdom of God and not be sidelined because of depression, because of guilt, because of shame, because of fear, whatever would hold us back. We break any, any assignment of suicide over any of the lives that are here. God, loneliness, we see it melt away here uh, this morning. Fear, we say fear, you have no place here. We thank you, Jesus, that right now people are making commitments internally that they're going to get honest with you. Just take a moment out. If you're dealing with this, just talk to the Lord in your own. You can whisper to him, whatever it may be, and say, Lord, I need your help. I'm in a mess. You can talk to him. Just talk to the Lord and get honest. Take time out even tonight to get honest with him and say, God, I'm, I'm, I need your help. Here's what I believe. But God, if there's a lie in there, you need to replace it with your truth. Thank you, Jesus. Let it be done in Jesus' name. In Jesus' mighty name. And everyone says...